Actually, this is the new revised standard version with the Apocrypha, which is a really wonderful translation of the Bible. But today I'm going to put it down and read from the King James Version because in some cases, the King James Version actually gets it best. But this is from the book, the first book of Kings in the 19th chapter. And he said, go forth and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so. When Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him that said, What doest thou here, Elijah? That still, small voice. There are so many other ways that we try to translate this passage. A gentle whisper or a soft whisper or a sound thin and quiet. Another has it as the sound, the sound of sheer silence. I wanted to make a joke here about God, you're on mute. God, we know you're speaking, but you're muted. (laughs) But it's so much more profound than that, that God would be in the sound of sheer silence or in a still, small voice. So I think to understand what's so meaningful about God showing up for Elijah in that still, small voice, we have to do some setting the context some turning back through the story and seeing where we find ourselves, remembering this superhero figure, Elijah, and where he is, coming to the close of maybe the sixth graphic novel, everything he's already been through, to understand why it's so profound that God shows up to him in this way. And so we have to do some history. And... Sometimes people, when you start to do this sort of scholarly work, just want to tune it out and glaze over it. And when you throw out a bunch of place names and people names and they don't really register because maybe you haven't been to the Holy Land or you're not really sure who these characters are and it's easy for it to just wash over you and for you to not really take it in. So I want to retell some of the history as though it's it's happening in our own place. So let's imagine that the Holy Land is here in the United States. Let's imagine that instead of the 12 tribes of Israel being united, it was the 13 original colonies that had united and formed a nation. And then let's remember that General George Washington, who became president, had been, uh, some people really thought that he should actually be president for life, and maybe we're even throwing around notions that sounded too much like monarchy, too much like kingship, But they said, you know, you're so good at this, we don't want to let you go. So it's safer to just keep you as president for life. 
And I love the song in Hamilton where he sings that he has to teach them how to say goodbye. And he says, this is not what we're going to be all about. But imagine if we had gone down that path. And this is one of those moments in the biblical story where God says to the people, this is a careful what you wish for moment. Do not wish for a king. If you wish for a king, things are going to end up going very badly for you. They're going to hold too much power. They could be too swayed to go after false gods. If you just, you have the Ten Commandments, you have the Torah, the other superhero Moses already told you how to live. If you would live in those ways, you will have no need of a king. But God relents and lets the people have a king. They have Saul, then they have David. David is a very flawed human being, but a reasonably good king and does a pretty good job of sticking to the covenant, more or less. So he ends up being the one that other kings will be measured against. But then Solomon is king after David. He has, is it 700 wives? Instead of trusting in God to provide for the people, he thinks, you know what's a really good idea? If I make political alliances through marriage with the you know, daughters of 700 leaders... So he seeks safety in that way, completely outside of what God had wished for the people. And then it starts to, uh, let's, say that, um, let's say the Civil War had actually fractured the North and the South. And they, they had, we had the Northern Kingdom. Let's say the Northern Kingdom kept the name. So Israel was the place in the North. Let's say, so that's America, the Northern Territories. And say we have the South. We'll call it Dixieland. Say it's seated. And there were two rival capitals. Can you imagine all of this and how it would play out? Imagine that D.C. was still the capital. Jerusalem was still the capital in the south. But then they set up Samaria in the northern kingdoms. Say that was New York City. So two rival capitals that absolutely hate each other with such a vengeance. So the story of the Good Samaritan, by the way, isn't like saying, oh, that good person from the town of Easton. It's saying that person from that place we hate so very, very, very much could actually be the best model of how to live God's love. That's why it's so radical to call someone the Good Samaritan. But anyway, the books of Kings, the first book and the second books, chart the legacy of these kings, and they compare them to David, and they see, are they living according to the laws Are they worshiping other gods? And this is a trope that we could dig into a little more. But let's just say the risk of marrying foreign women, according to the story, is they will introduce you to foreign gods. That was the threat. And these foreign women symbolized some kind of adultery because the symbolism is such that the people are in a covenantal relationship with God, much like a marriage. And if they turn to any outside gods, it's the same as breaking that covenantal relationship. So that was the risk there. That was why the people weren't supposed to marry foreign women. But the reason it was so compelling, again, let's carry out this as though it's the United States. There were native people, the Canaanites, who already lived in the land for thousands of years prior, and they knew how to grow food in the region. And they had these gods and goddesses who were fertility gods and goddesses who they claimed could make it rain. And imagine if there had then been a drought for years and people are going to the kings saying, you have to worship, you have to sacrifice, you have to 
you know, set up these idols in the temple or it's never going to rain. You can imagine the political pressure they would have been under. So what ends up happening is the unthinkable. They set up statues of cows, calves, you know, like the golden calf was the first thing that people did wrong. They set this up in the temple and you can just imagine how upsetting this was. So this trajectory has, say, 20 kings in the northern kingdom, 20 kings in the southern kingdom, and guess how many in the north actually did a good job and followed the way that they were told to live? Zero. And only eight kings in the southern kingdom did a reasonably good job sticking to the covenant. So the reason there are prophets, the reason Elijah has his job, is he is trying to call the people to account for the ways that they are not living according to how God told them to live. And it's not like he has a crystal ball and he looks in it and he says, you know, I know what's going to happen in the future. It's not like that. It's that he's saying, God said to us, if you don't live in these ways, we're going to be exiled. Did anyone have the kind of parent who's saying to the kids in the back seat, if you do that one more time, I will pull this car over? So he's just saying, God's about to pull this car over and we're all getting out. You know, it's about to be over. It's not that he can see the future. It's that God already told them what was about to happen. And he's reminding them that they are in a very dangerous path. He has a terrible job. Prophets are killed. They are ridiculed. They um, have absolutely the lowest rung of society. And they are always at loggerheads with the people who hold actual power, the king and the queen. So Elijah has had a terrible time of it. There is now a hit out on his life. Queen Jezebel has told him she's coming to kill him. And he has completed his six sagas and he's run away and he's out in the wilderness. And he actually sits down under a tree and he says he's ready to die. He says he cannot go on anymore. This is where God shows up in this moment. And so back to our scripture, Jezebel has sent a messenger saying she's going to kill him. He's fled for his life. He's gone a day's journey into the wilderness. He's sitting under a solitary broom tree asking that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. And then an angel comes to him and touches him and says to him, get up and eat. And the angel serves him food. Freshly baked bread and water. He ate and drank and lay down again. So two naps. A nap and a meal. And then a nap and another meal. And then he has the strength. And he goes 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And it's at that place that he came to a cave and spent the night there. That's when the word of the Lord comes to him and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've failed you. I tried so hard to do this horrible, impossible task, and I've absolutely failed, and I am so done. And we might imagine a God who tells him, buck up, yes, things are hard, but you need to carry on. This is a really big job, but I gave it to you for a reason. Get back out there. Go fight Queen Jezebel. Go take out all of the idols from the temple, and God doesn't do any of that. God shows up. In the sound of sheer silence, in the still small voice. And in the next story, God gives him his successor. God hands the work on to Elisha. Elijah takes off his mantle, tosses it down, 
to Elisha and is flown up into the sky in a chariot because God knows, God hears that he is done. So what we're finding here is a God of mercy. I think so many of us, look, there are times when we can't be done. There are things we cannot quit, we cannot cease from doing. There are times in our life when we don't want to. There are times when we have the reserves and the energy. There are times when we're just in some sort of energized flow state and we can make things happen. And if that's you right now, that's absolutely terrific. There are times we're excited about the work we're doing and we wake up the next day excited to keep doing it. If that's you now, just put this idea in your back pocket because you might need it someday. But there are also times when we are simply done. We can't go on. We can't do it anymore. And the good news just might be we don't have to. God isn't the kind of God who would force us to keep on doing something that we cannot do anymore. It might be time for someone else to do it. So our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. And similarly, this has been an unimaginable hard time for this person. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes And he did not live in a house, but in the tombs. Can you imagine living in the tombs naked? When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice. And now this isn't the man speaking, but the demon who possesses him. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. The word for a Roman group of a military troop, legion, for we are many, he says. Legion, for many demons had entered him. They, the demons, begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss, but this is the only way for Jesus to save him, is to exile now the demons from this person. So Jesus frees this person from the demon which has been inhabiting him, and the people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with a great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city, how much Jesus had done for him. So one of the things that I love about this story, and I know we've all heard David say this many times, I don't want to contradict him directly, but David always says, show me the place in the Bible where Jesus says to somebody, no, not you. 
you can't come. Jesus doesn't exact, well, David would always say, never, you can't find it. In fact, he might owe me a million dollars because I think he says if you can find it, you owe him a million dollars. I mean, he owes you. But anyway, Jesus almost says this to this person, but we have to see why. It's not because the person's not good enough. I think it's because when he wants to follow Jesus and be a disciple in that way, Jesus knows just how much more the disciples have to go through. They will also face a really hard life of persecution and suffering. And so he looks at this person who has to just be so done, having been possessed by a legion of demons. And so he doesn't say to him, no, not you. But when he says, let me come with you, he says, no. He says, go home. Go home, and this is the way that you can be a disciple. All you have to do is tell the people what God has done for you. That's it. You don't have to keep suffering. You don't have to do more hard things. You've done enough. You can go home, and your role can just be that simple. This is a story, another story about God's grace. You don't always have to upend your entire life. Your role can be as simple as loving the people around you and as simple as letting God love you back, as simple as listening for the grace of God in the still, small voice. If it has all been too much and you are done, you are allowed to go home and to listen for God. You don't need to be in the hurricane, in the wildfire, in the most recent local brawl, in the latest debate, in the culture wars. If you are done with all of that, you are allowed to be done. Maybe the ways God is calling us to be disciples in the hardest times in our lives is to find that peace within us, to feel that love for ourselves, to accept God's grace, and to trust that God will show up for us in the ways we need God in that moment. If God can give us that grace, we can give it to one another, and we can give it to ourselves. Thanks be to God.